This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. On today's episode, we'll start with some news around Napoli. We'll also cover the latest round of European action and Serie B. In part 2, we'll review Napoli's draw to Alkmaar in the Europa League. And in part 3, we'll preview Napoli's match on Sunday against Crotone. The big story this week was that a resolution was unanimously approved on Friday to officially rename the Stadio San Paolo to the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona. That means the final match played at the San Paolo was the 4-0 derby win against Roma. And the first match to be played at the Diego Maradona will be the Europa League match against Real Sociedad. The first Serie A match at the Maradona will be against Sampdoria. In addition to changing the name of the stadium, murals were painted at the train station closest to the stadium, the Stazione Ferroviaria Cumana. Manuel Guardasola from Calcio Napoli 24 posted images of most of the murals. One includes a quote from Omar Sivori, who played for Napoli from 1965 to 1968. It reads, All footballers should experience what it means to play in Napoli. The murals depict various club legends and key moments in the club's history. There are two of Maradona, one with his arms out wide and a crown above his head. There's another of Maradona hugging Fernando de Napoli and Francesco Romano from the 86-87 season where we won our first Scudetto. Close to that is goalkeeper Claudio Garella, who was our keeper from 85-88, to so he was a part of that Scudetto winning team as well. Antonio Careca represents our UEFA Cup winning team in 1989, wearing our away kit at the time that resembles the current Brescia kit. Fernando de Napoli represents the team that won the second Scudetto in 89-90. One of the murals is dedicated to Eddie Reja, who got us back to the top flight in 06-07. And I'm not positive, but I want to say it's Emanuele Calaio beside him. There's also a mural of Roberto Alpampa Sosa, who led us to promotion as well. 
Ezekiel Lavezzi and Walter Mazzari represent 2012 when we won our fourth Coppa Italia title. There's also a mural of Rafa Benitez who won a Coppa Italia and Supercoppa Italiana in 2014. Close to that is Jose Callejon with his bleach blonde hair and Gonzalo Higuain scoring his 36th goal in the 2015-16 campaign which remains a Serie A record. Then you have two legends of the current generation close together in Edinson Cavani and Marek Hamsik. Our current captain and resident Napolitan Lorenzo Insigne is depicted between Maurizio Sarri and Carlo Ancelotti. I know Ancelotti is a legend in his own right, but I don't think he did enough in his one and a half seasons with us to warrant inclusion. Along with Insigne, Dries Mertens and Kaladu Koulibaly represent our current squad. And representing our 2020 Coppa Italia win are Mr. Gattuso and Presidente De Laurentiis. De Laurentiis also pointed out at the conference that Ferlaino is missing and he will be added to the murals. In other news, Napoli have officially submitted their appeal to Coney for the loss at the table to Juventus and the deduction of a single point. That'll take some time to review, but just to remind everyone, the admissibility criteria for each level become narrower and narrower, so the likelihood of us getting anything back reduces each time we appeal. In player news, both Amir Rachmani and Elsid Kusai have tested negative. They will need at least a week to get back to match fitness, maybe longer, so don't expect to see them in the starting 11 anytime soon. And a quick update on our Primavera and Feminile teams. The Primavera was supposed to recommence on Thursday, but due to the lockdown, that has been postponed until January 11th. And Tuesday was the inauguration of Napoli Feminile's new headquarters, which is really nice. Check that out if you haven't seen it yet. Our ladies play Juventus on Saturday, and we'll recap that game in our next episode. Next, let's talk about the Italian teams in action in European competition this week, starting with the Champions League. Inter played against Borussia Mönchengladbach in Group B. Inter went into this round with only two points in four matches and little hope of advancing. Yet, Inter won 3-2 on goals from Matteo Darmian and a doppietta from Romelu Lukaku. What more can you say about Lukaku? He continues to deliver for Inter. He's one of the few Inter players who consistently plays really well. Nicola Barella would be another. On the first goal, Lukaku played a clever flick to Roberto Gagliardini, which was the pass before the pass. Then in the 33rd minute, Lukaku nearly set up Inter's second. He charged through the midfield before feeding Lautaro on the right wing. Lautaro had two attempts. The first was really well blocked by Stefan Leiner. Then on the rebound, he was stopped by Jan Sommer. Lautaro had a good match as well. Even though he didn't score, he came close again in the second half, hitting the upright mere minutes before the second goal. Two players that seem to have played themselves into Inter's starting 11 are Roberto Gagliardini and Matteo Darmian. Gagliardini, who scored on the weekend in Inter's decisive win over Sassuolo, assisted Darmian on the first goal. Darmian was also excellent against Sassuolo. He seems to have stolen that starting right wing-back position from Young signing Ashraf Hakimi, largely for his defensive contributions, but he got on the score sheet in this one, scoring his first European goal in six years. But this is Inter, so you can always expect drama, and this match was no exception. Gladbach were clearly the better side in the final 10 minutes of the first half. Samir Handanovic made a couple of important saves, but he wasn't going to stop Alessandro Plea from equalizing before the break. Milan Skriniar lost a Frenchman in front of goal, and he headed home his fourth in the competition. That strong play carried into the start of the second half. The complexion of the match could have easily changed had Marcus Turam done better with his open header in the 51st minute. Instead of going 2-1 up, Gladbach found themselves fighting back from a 3-1 deficit, and they nearly did. Minutes after Lukaku's second, Playa scored his second of the match. 
Then Playa thought he equalized in the 83rd minute, his shot from the top of the box found the bottom corner, but Brill Mbolo was rolled offside. Mbolo didn't actually touch the ball, but he did jump out of the way of the shot and therefore he impacted the play, so that was the correct decision. Inter managed to hang on for the win, picking up 7 yellow cards in the process. Remarkably, with the win and with Shakhtar beating Real Madrid for the second time in the group stage, Inter are still alive. They will need to beat Shakhtar in their final match, and will need to hope there is a winner between Real Madrid and Gladbach. If those two tie, then Inter would be eliminated. The other mouth-watering match of the round was Lazio against Borussia Dortmund. This match was slightly less appealing with Erling Braut Haaland being ruled out with a muscle injury. The match finished 1-1, but it was still very entertaining and wrought with controversy. Both sides made claims for penalties in the first half, and neither were given, which I was fine with. Both sides had opportunities to score in the first half. In the 29th minute, Lazio worked the ball up the pitch beautifully on the counterattack. Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, who returned to the starting 11 after not playing against Udinese on the weekend, should have taken the shot but instead elected to pass to Francesco Acerbi of all people in front of the goal, and Acerbi was offside. Back the other way, Pepe Reina made a good save on Thorgan Hazard, and then Marco Reus put his shot through the legs of Reina, but it bent just wide of the far post. Dortmund opened the scoring before the break. Reyna mishit his long ball straight back to Dortmund. Rafael Guerrero completed what was a lovely interplay by Dortmund. This was one of those controversial plays though. Marco Reus was in an offside position but was deemed not to have been involved in the play. Laziali were quick to point out that Reus obstructed Danilo Cantaldi and therefore Reus was part of the play. Personally, I don't agree with that. I don't think Cataldi was getting to that ball regardless of whether Reus was there, but I do think there should have at least been a bar review. Latu looked very good in the second half. Luis Alberto had an opportunity but couldn't keep his shot down. Chiro Immobile had an opportunity but his shot was stopped by Roman Berkey. In the 66th minute, Lazio were awarded a penalty, which was another controversial decision. Milinkovic-Savic went down just inside the corner of the box, but the replay clearly showed that he was already on his way to ground before the contact, yet the penalty was still given and Immobile converted against his former club. Immobile nearly scored again with a lovely volley in the 88th minute, but Berkey foiled him again. Andreas Pereira came close to scoring from a direct free kick aimed at the top corner, but Berkey stopped that as well. Then with Latsu up a man after Mats Hummels limped off the pitch, Latsu made claims for a handball in the box. Before the VAR had a chance to review the play, the match official blew the final whistle. So with the draw, Dortmund are through. With Club Brugge beating Zenit, Latsu need to draw against Brugge to advance, and a win would give them a chance at top of the group, though Dortmund will likely win the group if they win over Zenit. Juventus comfortably beat Dinamo Kiev 3-0 on goals from Federico Chiesa, Cristiano Ronaldo, and Alvaro Morata. Stephanie Frappard made history becoming the first female to officiate a men's Champions League match. Keza was easily the man of the match. He scored his first goal for Juventus with a difficult header on a ball that was slightly behind him. Kiev keeper George Bushin should have done better. He got a piece of the shot but not enough to keep it out. Surprisingly, Morata actually stayed onside in the build-up to the goal. Keza also set up the second goal. He made an incisive run on the right wing before playing the ball into a dangerous area. Juve were a bit fortunate on this goal. Bushan blocked the cross, but it ricocheted off Morata and fell for Ronaldo in front of the empty goal. Ronaldo came close to scoring a few times prior to this happen. In the 30th minute, he hit the bar, and in the 55th minute, he put a hard shot on target but caught too much of the goal, and Bushan pushed it over the bar. Keza assisted the third goal as well, squeezing his pass between two Kiev defenders. Morata calmly tucked his low shot past Bushan to seal the win. Finally, Keza also did really well to track back and help defend. The battle between him and Mikolenko on Juve's right wing and Kiev's left wing was really fun to watch. 
Kiev did have their chances, but Shesezny was up to the task when called upon. He got off his line really quickly in the 41st minute to stop Viktor Sigankov from point-blank range. That protected the 1-0 lead. Then in the 55th minute, Sigankov played a dangerous ball into the box that only needed a touch to beat Shesezny, but no one got there. Again, Shesezny did well to push it away as he saw it late and the cross would have bent into the back of the goal. With Barcelona winning as well, Juve remained three points back. It will be difficult but not impossible for Juve to win the group having lost the first meeting 2-0 at the Allianz. Barcelona scored a late penalty and added time in that match which could prove to be the difference. Finally, Atalanta drew Mitiland 1-1. Even though this was a surprising result, I wouldn't say that Atalanta played poorly. Once again, they had most of the ball and had many chances but weren't very clinical. Duvan Zapata in particular has really struggled to find the back of the goal lately. Giampiero Gasparini recently suggested that Zapata has not been the same since the last international break and I think I have to agree with him. Zapata is normally in top shape and he looked completely gassed three quarters of the way through this match. His best chance came in the 10th minute with a clear path to goal but he didn't get much on his shot. Only minutes later, Mitiland opened the scoring center back Alexander Schultz thumped his shot from the top of the box into the top corner. That was his first goal ever in the Champions League. Atalanta continued to press and then dominated for the final half hour of the match. 18 year old Ahmad Traore was a big part of that replacing Luis Muriel in the 68th minute. Mitiland keeper Jesper Hansen made two excellent saves to deny Traore his first goal in the competition. In the 76th minute, he got clean through to the goal, but Hansen made the save. Then he made an excellent save on Traore's powerful bending shot from the left corner of the box, but Hansen was not going to stop Christian Romero's header moments later. Interestingly, the two goals were both scored by center backs. For Mitteland, this was their first point in the Champions League. Meanwhile, Atalanta only need a draw in their final match against Ajax to advance, which is all they could have hoped for. Moving on to the Europa League, Napoli drew Alkmaar 1-1, we'll talk more about that in part 2. Milan came back from 2-0 down to beat Celtic 4-2, Hakan Chalanoglu, Samu Castillejo, Jens Peter Haug, and Brahim Diaz scored the goals for Milan. Stefano Pioli was back on the sidelines after recovering from Covid and Zlatan Ibrahimovic looked on from the stands while he recovers from a hamstring injury. I was very impressed with this Milan performance, they showed a lot of character and maturity to come from behind. Celtic opened the scoring in the 7th minute, Gijo Donnarumma played the ball to Rade Krunic at the top of the box. Krunic took his eye off the ball for just a second, feeling the presence of Tom Rogic. That's all Rogic needed to win possession and slot his shot into the bottom corner. Then moments after Donnarumma made an excellent save on Callum McGregor, Otzen Edwards scored a lovely chip over Donnarumma, Diogo Dallo played Edward onside but the finish was very clever, so Celtic were up 2-0 in under 15 minutes of play. As a Napoli fan, our side would have dropped their heads and this match would have already been over. Meanwhile, this very young Milan side kept their composure and kept playing. They knew that Celtic had only won 2 of their last 10 in all competitions and often they were ahead in those matches. Milan pulled one back in the 24th minute on just a perfect free kick from Hakan. He showed his leadership both with the quality of the free kick and with what he did after the goal, he ran all the way back to Krunic to encourage him after he had made that mistake on the first goal. Only minutes later, Castillejo equalized. The defending was not very good on this play. The Celtic players were getting in each other's way more than they were getting in Milan's way. I thought this was Castillejo's best performance for Milan in a long time. He's lost his starting position to Alexis Salamakers. That's another thing that's impressed me about this Milan performance, which is that they won the match with a number of bench players on the field like Krunic and Sandro Tonali. Another one of those players is Jens Peter Haug. He scored a brilliant goal to put Milan up 3-2. 
He also provided a gorgeous assist on the fourth goal, which was finished by another bench player in Brahim Diaz. Brahim calmly chipped over Vasilios Barlas, which is technically very difficult to do, and he made it look very easy. Donnarumma made a couple of big saves after that, but in the end, it was a rather comfortable win for Milan. Milan did unfortunately lose Simon Kair to injury in this match. He's not a bench player. He's a regular starter, so we'll see what kind of impact that has on Milan's back line. But so far, they've shown that they have the ability to win matches without key players. With the win, Milan secured their place in the knockout phase, but they're still a point back of Lille. They'll need help from Celtic in the final match of the group stage to win the group. Finally, Roma beat Young Boys 3-1. Young Boys were without their regular skipper Fabian Lustenberger. As usual, Paolo Fonseca rotated his squad quite a bit for this match. It was all Roma early on, with Young Boys keeper David Bambalmo stopping both Pedro and Borja Mayoral. Yet, it was Jean-Pierre and Sam who scored the opening goal of the match, and some goal it was. He got behind Cristante on the long ball. Then when Cristante got goalside and Sam dribbled past him before finishing with a left-footed shot to the far post, and Sam is a lethal goal scorer. He scored once in the Champions League qualifying, then twice in Europa League qualifying, and this was his third in the group stage. He's also scored four in nine appearances in the Swiss Super League. Roma kept the pressure up and equalized just before the break. Carlos Perez did well to get past two defenders before picking up Pedro on the left side of the box. Pedro's shot was stopped, but Mayoral headed in the rebound to score his third of the competition. In the 59th minute, 18-year-old Ricardo Calafiori scored the goal of the round, and his first for Roma's senior team. This was a stunning left-footed blast that he hit perfectly into the top corner. Edin Dzeko came off the bench in the 60th minute and doubled Roma's lead in the 81st minute with a lovely volley from the top of the box. Frustrations boiled over after that. Mohamed Kamara was shown a straight red for sucker-punching Henrik Mkhitaryan. That pretty much ended the match. Roma passed the ball around after that until the final whistle. With the win, Roma guaranteed themselves top spot in the group so they can start their B team for the final match of the group stage. Moving on to Serie B, match day 9 was played last weekend. Kevo lost 2-1 to Lecce. After Mariusz Stepinski and Luca Garitano exchanged goals only minutes apart, neither side scored until the 93rd minute. Filippo Falco, who replaced Stepinski, scored the winner. Frosinone beat Brescia 2-1. Ernesto Torregrosso scored a Hand of God style goal, but unlike Maradona, he was caught and the goal was disallowed. Torregrosso did score after that to make the score 1-1, however Birker Bjarsson picked up two yellows in the span of three minutes and Frosinone took advantage, scoring the winner in the 84th minute. Vicenza drew Empoli 2-2 in a back-and-forth affair. Ricardo Maggiorini scored the opening goal of the match in the 15th minute and Empoli equalized early in the second half. Empoli had a chance to go ahead from the penalty spot, but Leonardo Mancusu smashed his shot into the upright. Empoli thought they won the match after Andrea Lamantia scored in the 88th minute, but in the final minute of the match, Ricardo Fiamozzi pulled a Vicenza player down in the box. That earned him a second yellow and gave Vicenza the chance to equalize from the spot, and they took it. Pordenone beat Pescara 2-0. Davide Dia scored his sixth of the season. After going down by two Pescara's, Leandro Fernandez was shown a straight red, which pretty much ended any hopes of coming back. Cittadella trounced Pisa 4-1. Already down 1-0, Pisa Simone Benedetti was shown a straight red for fouling Frank Saju as the last man back. Roberto Ugunse converted the penalty, and Cittadella never looked back from there. Pisa's only consolation was a lovely bicycle kick goal from Michele Marconi. Venezia beat Ascoli 2-1. Ascoli scored first, but Venezia scored two gorgeous goals to win the match. First, Mattia Ramu scored a perfect bicycle kick to the top corner. Then Antonio Fiordilino scored a volley from the penalty spot. 
Monza beat Regina 1-0. Michael Folaruncho picked up two yellows in two minutes just before the half. That really hurt Regina. Monza dominated the second half. Not only did they score the only goal, but they also had a penalty stopped and they hit the bar. That was Monza's third win in their last four, with the other match being a draw. Cremonese stole a point against Reggiana with a goal in the 90th minute to finish 1-1. Napoli's own Gennaro Tutino scored his sixth goal of the season to lead Salernitana to a 1-0 win over Cosenza. And Spal beat Antella 1-0. So after nine rounds, Salernitana and Lecce are top of the table, followed by Empoli, Spal, Venezia, Frosinone, Cittadella, and Chievo rounding out the playoff zone. At the bottom of the table, Cremonese, Antella, and Ascoli are in the relegation zone, though Cremonese have a game in hand. Pescara and Pisa are in the relegation playout spots. So that'll do for part one. In part two, we'll review Napoli's draw to Alkmaar in the Europa League. Next, we'll review Napoli's Europa League match against AZ Alkmaar. Here's how it went. The game against team seeded fourth, Rijeka, on match day six. So off we go in the Netherlands. From the back is Di Lorenzo. Good run, there's two. Insigne and Mertens in the box. The only two at the moment, not the tallest two either. Ruiz. Stayed onside. Mertens is in there. And it's a real poacher's goal from Dries Mertens. Napoli works it perfectly down the right. He doesn't need to be the biggest when the ball has played in as beautifully as that. Should just about be that. Unless Arsene can pinch the ball back in a dangerous area. There we go. An extra minute on top of the 45. Dries Mertens at the moment. The man whose goal separates the two sides. And it was pretty even in the first half apart from that. It's Napoli to get us off and underway again then. Mitzia's corner. Cantu, right to Longwood to Coltminers, and it's gone all the way through. Can you believe it? Ton Coltminers rifles it in. Did it get a touch from Bruno Martins Indy? Either way, RZ a level, and we've had only eight minutes of the second half. Certainly moving the ball quicker. Wind up, beautiful ball. He went down. That's a penalty. RZ have got themselves a penalty. Bakayoko tracking back and catching Zakaria Abuklal. And this could really turn around now. This is the biggest of the season so far. It's the RZ captain against David Ospina. This for the turnaround. I'd say by the goalkeeper and wasted on the follow-up. A big save from David Ospina onto the post. And Tone Miners misses in Europe. David Ospina waits. And depending on the referee, that might be it. That is it in Alkmaar. It's finished. RZ2, Napoli 2. I've finished RZ1, Napoli 1, I should say. As you heard, this match finished in a 1 1 draw on goals from Dries Mertens and Bruno Martinsindi. This was a really uninspiring performance from Napoli after looking so impressive against Roma on the weekend. Fortunately, Rijeka held Real Sociedad to a 1 1 draw, which means we remain atop of the group on 10 points. 
followed by Sociedad and Alkmaar on 8 points. That means we only need a draw against Sociedad to advance, and assuming Alkmaar beat Rijeka, we'd need a win to top the group. We were fortunate to even get a point out of this match, but before we talk about that, let's get to the starting formations. Alkmaar lined up in a 4-3-3 with Marco Bizo in goal, Bruno Martinsindi and Pantelis Hatsidiako started at centre-back, Owen Windal started at left-back, but Sugawara started at right-back after Jonas Svensson picked up an Achilles injury in training, Danny DeWitt played in the centre of the midfield, Frederick Mitzio and Tun Kumpminers flip sides, Kumpminers played on the left and Mitzio played on the right. Up top we were expecting Myron Boadu to start, but he started on the bench. Instead, Albert Goodmanson started at striker which freed up the left wing for Zakaria Abuklal to make his full European debut. Finally, Calvin Stengs started on the right wing. Napoli had two changes to our predicted 11. Gennaro Gattuso lined up in the 4-2-3-1 once again. David Ospina returned to the goal after missing a few matches due to injury. That was one of the differences. Kalidou Koulibaly and Nikola Maksimovic started at centre-back. Fauzi Goulam started at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right-back. Teemue Bakayoko and Fabian Ruiz started in the double pivot. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Matteo Politano started on the right wing. Finally, Piotr Zielinski started in the 10th spot behind Dries Mertens, which was the other difference. We had Andrea Patania starting there. Okay, so let's start with our three keys to the match, then I'll quickly talk about the goals, a couple of players that actually played well in this match, and I'll close with a few words on Gattuso's tactics. The first key to the match was Napoli had to approach this match with the right mentality. Clearly, that did not happen. I know the conditions were not great. We played in the rain and we were away from home, but I did not see any sense of urgency. Quite the contrary, I saw a lot of walking around. I saw a lot of lazy passes and they were not accurate and often led to turnovers. And I saw Alkmaar players pass the ball out of their own end very easily because of our slow press. This has easily been the biggest weakness of this Napoli team and in fact many Napoli teams for a while now. We have the quality, but we lack that killer instinct. We have a tendency to play down to our opponent's level, which is why we rarely beat teams comfortably. Perhaps this was a hangover from the high of the Roma match, but it's something we need to figure out. So far, these lackluster performances have mainly come in the Europa League, and we're still top of the group, so they haven't been consequential. Yes, our losses to Sassuolo and Milan weren't our best performances, but they weren't terrible either, and they were against teams that can beat you even on a good day. What concerns me is after our final group stage match against Real Sociedad, we play four games in 20 days. Two of those matches are against Inter and Lazio back-to-back, so we can't afford to have off days during that stretch. Our second key to the match was that we couldn't give Alkmaar space. I think we failed in this regard as well. I knew this was going to be an issue straight from the opening kickoff when Alkmaar got two chances in the opening 30 seconds of the match. Alkmaar seemed to pass the ball around us with relative ease. They had plenty of opportunities. Abu Klal had a chance in the 20th minute where he and Goodmanson were left completely unmarked at the top of the box. On that play, Maksimovic was marking Abu Klal and for some reason he dropped back when the ball rolled onto Windial on the wing. Di Lorenzo moved out wide to pick up the run, which Politano was late to follow. At the same time, Bakayoko was casually jogging back, perhaps thinking Maksimovic would step up. That left a huge gap at the top of the box, and it nearly cost us a goal. In the 55th minute, Abu Klal got behind Maksimovic on a lovely ball from Stengs and won a corner kick. Alkmaar had an excellent chance on the corner kick. Windell's cross intended for Gunmanson rolled through for Stengs. 
Gulam followed DeWitt into the middle of the area, even though Koulibaly was already there. At the same time, Zelensky and Insignia were casually jogging back this time. That left the whole right side open for Stang's late run, but fortunately he rushed his shot on his off foot and missed the target. We were fortunate that with all the space we gave them, Alkmaar's finishing was not particularly good on this night. The third key to the match was that we had to finish our opportunities. I'm going to call this one a push. We scored the opening goal of the match on our first chance in the 6th minute. That was an excellent goal. Di Lorenzo is so valuable for that run he makes on the right wing. He played in a perfect early ball and Mertens did very well to stay onside. After that, we didn't have too many chances. Mertens had a volley in the 15th minute after a clever chip from Zielinski, but that was always going to be difficult to execute. We had a few chances in the final quarter of the match. The best one was Patania's open header in the 76th minute. I saw a lot of Napoli Twitter immediately jump on Patania after the match and start to reel off players that we should have purchased instead of him. I think that is a typical Napoli Twitter overreaction. As soon as a player underperforms, he needs to be replaced. We need to appreciate that Patania only joined the club this fall and hasn't really played much. He even joined training late because of COVID. We saw with Koulibaly last season how missing training can set a player behind. Patania is still adjusting to going from being a regular starter to a substitute. While there are players like Luis Muriel who can come off the bench and score at will, that's not something you can expect, at least not right away. Patania came close again in the 85th minute after a perfectly weighted ball from Insignia in a well-timed run, but he just ran out of space. He beat Bizo, but he didn't have the angle, and because he's left-footed, the shot was always bending wide of the far post. Finally, Chucky Lozano also came really close to breaking free in the 82nd minute, but Bizo made a vital tackle outside the box, which was really impressive. Had Lozano got a better touch on the ball, it's probably a sure goal, or Bizo has to foul and is shown a red card there. So having failed to achieve two of our three keys to the match and pushing on the other one, it's no surprise that we were very poor and we were fortunate to salvage a draw. Despite our poor play, I think a couple of players actually did well. First is David Ospina, who made his first appearance since picking up an injury during the international break. Ospina didn't miss a beat. He made an excellent save on Abuklao in the 20th minute, and of course he saved the penalty kick. Sometimes keepers stop penalties because they were poorly taken. That wasn't the case here. The shot was well taken, and Ospina just made a really good save. After hearing on the broadcast that Coombe Miners has already missed two penalties in the edit of BZ, I'm surprised he took the shot, but clearly he's their designated penalty taker. It's also worth noting that it was Bakayoko who fouled Abu Klau to give Alkmaar the penalty. He's had a rough go of it the last few matches. He got the red card against Milan, which was somewhat reckless and caused him to miss the Roma match. He was fine in the second meeting with Rijeka, and then he conceded the penalty in this one. Another player that has been decent lately is Fauzi Gulam. He was guilty of giving Alkmaar too much space on occasion, as I mentioned in our keys to the match, but he's been very good getting forward. He's especially good at crossing the ball, which is a huge deficiency on this team. And I also want to give Owen Windall a shout. He was wreaking havoc on the left wing all match. That's one concern I have with Politano, which is that he's not that great defensively. And with how fullbacks get forward in the modern game, your wingers need to be able to defend. Windall got forward and played the square ball on that Abu Klaus shot in the 20th minute that was stopped by Ospina. He also got forward and played the crossed Abu Klaus on the penalty. The last thing I want to talk about is Gattuso's tactics for this match. Let's start with the personnel. I was quite pleased with the selection of players. We had Meret and Patania over Ospina and Mertens, but I had no problem with either of those selections. I saw someone complaining on Twitter that we should have just started the same squad that beat Roma 4-0. I honestly don't think that would have made a difference with how we played. 
Also, you can't look at each match in isolation. When you play every three to four days, you have to plan your formations two or three matches in advance and try to rest players when you can. In terms of Gattuso's substitutions, I thought he did fine. He replaced Fabian with Alip Elmas in the 57th minute, which was a pretty early change for Gattuso, but he recognized that Fabian wasn't contributing much. Then he replaced Zielinski with Petania and dropped Mertens into the number 10 spot, which I think was an attempt to boost the attack, but Gattuso quickly realized the change didn't make a difference. Five minutes later, Gattuso replaced Mertens with Diego Demme and switched to the 4-3-3. That signaled to me that Gattuso was more concerned about conceding a goal than scoring a goal. We know from the Real Sociedad match that when we play with two holding midfielders in the 4-3-3, we don't really create much in attack. Perhaps Gattuso was aware, at least at that moment, that Rijeka were ahead of Sociedad, so it may have been a calculated decision. We were obviously off our game, and a draw would give us a good chance to advance. All we need is a draw against Sociedad, whereas if we lost this match, we'd be in a tough position of having to beat Sociedad. Alternatively, a much simpler explanation is that Gattuso basically used the players he had at his disposal, such is the impact of Osimhen not being available. I think that's something a lot of people forget when they criticize Napoli's poor performances. We've been playing without our record signing at striker. Prior to that, we were playing without Zielinski, who was very important to our midfield, and even LCQ Sai has played a big role at the back. With that all-important match against Sociedad next week, I'll be very curious to see who Gattuso starts against Crotone. We'll preview that match in part three. final part we'll preview Napoli's match on Sunday against Crotone. In my opinion this is a must win for us. Crotone are at the bottom of the table with no wins, two draws and seven losses so we cannot be the team that gives them their first win. Crotone have scored only six goals all season which is fewest in the league and they've conceded 20 goals which is third most in the league behind Benevento and Torino. Their biggest threat is Simi who stands six feet six inches tall He's been producing at a decent rate considering how few goals Crotone have scored. The 2019-20 Serie B Capocannoniere has 3 goals so far this season which puts him on pace to score about 12 goals on the season. Crotone will likely be relegated back to Serie B but no team is to be taken lightly. They showed on match day 4 that they do have the ability to steal points when they drew Juventus. I know Juventus have not been great this year but it's still worth noting. Crotone's issue is consistency. They've had stretches of positive play, but they rarely play well for the full 90 minutes. They played really well in the first half against Bologna and looked like they might be heading for their first win, but then they had a very poor second half. It doesn't help that Crotone have so many injuries. Luca Cigherini is not in the squad for this match, and Andrea Rispoli, Luca Siligardi, and Emmanuel Riviere are all out as well. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Giovanni Stroppa lines up his men in a flat 3-5-2 with Alex Cordaz in goal. The back three are usually ex-Napoli player Sebastiano Luperto in the middle with Luca Marone at center left and Lisandro Magalan at center right. The wing backs are Arkadouj Retza, 
on the left and Pedro Pereira on the right. Crotone rotate quite a bit with their central midfielders. We've seen Milos Vulic, Salvatore Molina, and Ahmad Ben Ali all play in that central midfielder role. I'll go with Molina to start this one. With Cigarini out, we should see Jacopo Petriccione at center left. And though he's played in the middle, Vulic typically plays center right. Up top, Simi and Junior Macias are the dual strikers. For Napoli, I think we'll see a similar lineup to the one Gattuso played against Roma lined up in the 4-2-3-1. With Ospina starting in goal against Alkmaar midweek, I think we'll see Alex Meret get the start in this match. At the back, I'd love to see Kalidou Koulibaly get a rest here, but I suspect he will still play alongside Kostas Manolas. Elcid Kusai is not in the squad for this match, and Fauzi Gulam seems to be our preferred Europa League left back at the moment, which means Mario Rui is our left back for Serie A matches, so I expect to see Mario Rui start. On the right, Giovanni Di Lorenzo appears to be the only option, so he should start again. In the midfield, I expect to see Diego Demme and Fabian Ruiz in the double pivot. Up top, Lorenzo Insigne should start on the left and Chucky Lozano on the right, and I think we'll see Piotr Zielinski in the 10 spot once again. Given the importance of that match against Real Sociedad on Thursday, I think we should see Andrea Petagna start at striker to make sure Mertens is fresh for the Europa League. Next, let's talk about our three keys to the match. The first is to take advantage of our pace on the wings. That means Insigne cutting in from the left so Mario Rui can get forward, and it means taking advantage of Lozano's pace on the right. Di Lorenzo also likes to get forward, but I find he has better chemistry on the overlap with Politano. Now, using the wings only works if you can play a decent cross. That would support the decision to start Petania. Alternatively, we could look to cut the ball back to our midfielders joining in the attack. The issue there is they need to hit the target, which they haven't been very good at. The second key to the match is to play a high press and force those center backs to play the long ball or make wayward passes toward the middle of the pitch. That will trigger the counterattack, which again makes our wingers very important. The third key to the match is to play direct. That five-man midfield is going to put a lot of bodies in the middle of the pitch, so passing horizontally is not going to get us very far. Once again, Zielinski and Insigne will need to break the lines, as we saw them do against Roma. When the pass is not there, we should look for the switch, especially from left to right, and depending on how high Crotona defend, we should also look for the long ball. The head official for this match is Livio Marinelli. His assistants are Alessandro Costanzo and Luigi Rosi. The fourth official is Luca Massimi, and on the VAR is Luigi Nasca, assisted by Stefano Del Giovanni. For my prediction, I'm going to go with Napoli to win 3-0 on a brace by Chucky Lozano, and I'll give the third goal to Andrea Petagna. I think Crotone just don't have the quality to compete with this Napoli side. I like their attackers, but I think they are grossly mismatched in the midfield and at the back. I hate to say it out loud because we always seem to make the lower table teams look far better than they actually are, but I'm expecting a dominant performance here. I was tempted to go with a 2-0 win as Crotona haven't conceded more than two goals in their last four matches, including against Atalanta and Lazio, but I'm going to go with 3-0. So that's our preview of Napoli versus Crotona. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. Or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at ForzaNapoliPod. We'll talk to you again next week to review this match and to preview our Europa League group stage match against Real Sociedad. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre!
It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.